Hello and welcome to the CA Agenda, a brand new podcast brought to you by ICAS. I'm your host, Indy Hoti, and over the next few months, I'll be speaking with some truly inspirational CAs about the challenges and opportunities currently facing the accountancy profession and the wider business world. This podcast is part of the CA Agenda Thought Leadership content series from ICAS, which focuses on the three key themes of technology, trust and talent. Go to ICAS.com and search CA Agenda to explore our thought leadership content and learn more about the agenda. On this episode of the podcast, recorded in November 2019, I'm joined by ICAS CEO Bruce Cartwright. Bruce qualified as a CA in 1989 and spent the majority of his career operating within PwC's restructuring team and across a diverse range of industries. An experienced ICAS committee member and ICAS council member from 2008 to 2014, Bruce has chaired the Insolvency Committee, Technical Committee and has played a leading role in many of ICAS initiatives before joining the Institute as an Executive Director of Policy Leadership in 2017. Bruce assumed the role of ICAS Chief Executive in March of 2018 and has led the Institute through a period of significant change on the road to position ICAS as a modern, leading and virtual professional body. Welcome Bruce, great to have you here. Thanks Indy, pleasure to be here. So Bruce, we've got lots to cover as the CEO of ICAS. I know there's lots lots on your plate, but before we get into your current role, tell us a bit more about your career journey. What made you choose a career in accountancy so it's interesting now being the CEO of the Institute because 30 35 years ago when I was looking at a profession to join I never envisaged being in this position so I was probably typical of the time um, towards 1980 ish about to leave school and thinking about possible careers and I actually was one of these people that decided actually quite early on on I'm looking at chartered accountancy now I come from a military family and the last couple of generations, everybody had been military somewhere. Um, so it's a bit unusual. And I can't quite remember who stimulated the interest in it. I think actually, bizarrely, it was my mother who knew very little about it, but one day said to me, you'd be pretty good at that because I think it was a combination of you're very good at numbers and you like talking and communicating. So I thought, what's a chartered accountant? Looked at it a bit more and I could see a career path. I could see... I would go off to university, I would start to learn, and then there was a profession and a business understanding behind it. And actually, funny enough, compared to the military side of things, I thought I'll be able to think for myself and not be told what to do. Now, whether or not that's the truth as you start your training practice is a different matter, but I believed that at the time. So went to university, and at that point in Scotland, certainly you had to do a relevant degree, which which I'm glad that's gone now because I think it, it tightens you up too much too early. So I did business and law. And on qualification, I joined what was then Pricewaterhouse's as your typical trainee in the audit department. Um, perhaps fortuitously, um, I worked for directly for an individual who'd just come into Scotland to run to set up the restructuring practice. And having said that, very early on, I went on as a comment for a year to Cardide Metalbox down in Botchaby, Carlisle. And soon after that, I was lucky enough to go on a couple of other secondments. And while I stayed with PwC, I spent a year with the Royal Bank looking at how they lent money. And, and I went off to with the firm to Malaysia and spent a year in Kuala Lumpur. So, so good experience early on. And when I came back, I got involved in some insurance restructuring work out of London. So that was my early career. 
In your recent article for the CA magazine, you wrote that sustainability is going to be a key focus for ICAS in 2020. So how will ICAS be supporting and informing members around this topic? Well, well, it's an interesting place to start because when I started writing the article, I was asked to consider six key business themes in relation to ICAS. And I think this was probably the fourth on my list that I wrote about. But as I wrote it, I actually wrote on in, in my own script that um, actually of all of them, this was the biggest. And I moved it up to number one. Now, I wasn't consciously ordering them one to six. And I haven't ordered them one to six except for this one. Because some of the issues I speak about, um, the changes in audit profession, etc. There's a fundamental issue here that, that if there is no planet, then forgive me, but the audit profession doesn't feel particularly relevant. So I absolutely pushed it up to number one because there's something fundamental here in sustainability of our own planet. You get into sustainability of other things, but let's talk about the planet. And what really strikes me about the sustainability of the planet takes you to a phrase, save the planet. But the more you think about it, it's not really the planet we're saving. From our perspective, and I'm not being selfish about this, but actually it's saving mankind. Because really we're actually talking around the planet will sustain, no matter what natural disaster may or may come as a result perhaps of our behavior, the planet will continue. So the dinosaurs were here and were extinction, ice age, etc. The planet continues. So the planet will metamorphose as something else. So if you want to think of how important this is, then you go to, well, actually, we're saving mankind, we're saving ourselves. And even then, it, it feels a bit sort of gratuitous. But turn it into, well, actually, here and now we're probably okay, but, but we might be saving our grandchildren or our children's grandchildren. And now I think no matter what level you're on of interest, you've got to be interested because this is personal. And it is personal and it's not something we can just simply ignore and pass to the next person. So it's absolutely in our self-interest and it doesn't matter who says I'm not interested, you are. I'd agree with you there. It's one of the, the most important topics that our society, our global society faces, right? And we hear a lot in the news about sort of our day-to-day actions, how that can affect the climate and how we can improve our footprint in terms of our daily lives. But I guess turning that question to the accountancy profession, what, what can we do as CAs to drive this conversation to really improve the way we work and operate? So if, if you take it simply on sort of some sort of micro level at the moment, when we, when we choose our own diets, etc., there's a lot of misinformation out there about what's good for you, what's bad for you, and it changes, caffeine, etc. We've all got a good idea, but do we know the facts or the truth or whose facts? Um, and I liken that to sustainability, climate change. There's a lot of information. We have degrees of confidence in the information, but we don't know half the answers, I suspect. And that's where the accountants come in, because they can help actually measure the impact of various things. So I see it at two levels. One is clarifying the natural data that undoubtedly needs a lot of scientific input. But accountants are very good at converting that data into something meaningful for everybody. So that's in the information provision, but also take that back into the corporates where they work. 
because they are at the driving seat of the levers of the business about what makes this and what drives the cash, etc. They're also at the core of making choices. And when you're making choices, yes, you can do them on the profitability pound sign, but it's the accountant who can also look at the opportunity cost. Because I think we're very good traditionally at looking at this is how to drive profit, this is how to drive cash. But it will be the accountancy profession who can measure and detail the opportunity cost that hasn't been considered and maybe hasn't been a priority. But if you say, yes, you can do that, and by the way, the impact over here is X, and we're going to measure that, and we can see the impact of it, then it will drive choices. And the choices will be more fitting for a future sustainable platform. I personally come across a lot of individuals who who talk about the accountancy profession in the sense that whilst we have a reporting framework that looks at value provided to shareholders and looks at profitability, the common the common criticism or piece of feedback uh, stems around how can we report to a wider range of stakeholders? So, well, maybe that could perhaps be local governments, national governments, our, our community, the environment, etc. And what could the accountancy profession do to try and change the way reporting is structured to cater to a wider number of stakeholders and looking at different metrics? Well, I think I think the accountancy profession can put forward suggestions of measurement. They can also articulate what they believe can be measured in a sensible fashion. And that's all good. But this is producers of information. The other side of that is actually people have got to demand the information. And I think that is changing. So. So we've got to be careful that the accountancy pr- profession doesn't just volunteer what it thinks it can. It's actually got to ask the question, what do you want to hear about? And in terms of what you want to hear about, what's important to you, what are our priorities? So not, not the accountancy profession priorities, what as a society are our priorities. So is it what so take an example, what is it that would stop temperatures rising? Just simplistically. Okay, well, some scientists can say we'll do this and that, in which case the accountants can start to measure it. So we're a provider of the information and detailed analytic comment about do this, do that, it will have this impact. But it's not for the accountants to decide the priorities. Yes, they play a part in the priorities, but by giving measurable, it's for society to decide the priorities. But there's no borders to this discussion. Uh, it, it would be absurd to say there's borders because actually you see that plastics that, that that we drop in the sea here turn up there, global warming happens in different parts of the world. Uh, this really is a case of no man is an island. And the topic of sustainability in reference to ICAS as an institute, you mentioned that when you were writing one of your articles that sustainability became number one, a number one topic. Is that the same for ICAS as an institute as well? I think we we speak out on a number of topics, but but when you come back to the headlines, um, it has to be right up there. Interesting, just just I when I write blogs or or even on our social media networks around ICAST content, the two that get the most interesting feedback and hits are actually sustainability and mental health. We'll maybe leave mental health for another day, but they are the two that I find I get more feedback, comments or people picking up and and saying something back to me. And what kind of feedback do you get from from those topics around sustainability? Well, I think the positive thing is that people will come back. It's great to hear ICAST talking about this. So the challenge is 
Are you going to keep talking about it? And are you serious about it? We have to be serious about it. I mean, I, I know there's many other topics and, and there's more closely aligned directly with our day-to-day -day business, undoubtedly. And, and I look at trust in the profession, particularly where is the audit element of the profession? Where's that going to at the moment? Where there's a lot of work going into redesign of that profession. It's all really important but it's not on the same global impact, if that makes sense. As I say, if there is no planet, the rest of the issues kind of drop down. So as an institute, what is ICAS currently doing around the sustainability agenda? What do we have in place within the institute to really inform and educate on this topic? So we've got a, we've got a small team engaged directly in sustainability supported by a panel. And the panel comes from quite a diverse background, but some some practicalities um, only last week and this, this will be public by the time this may be broadcast but I reviewed a letter that was put together by many accounting bodies and others about commitment to climate change etc measurement and inputting to it and and I was asked to have a look at it and say would ICAST be happy signing this and to be honest it's a well thought out creative piece of work and actually it's difficult to say why would we not sign it um, so we will be signing it uh, in the next couple of weeks and probably that will be very public by the time this podcast goes live. And to confirm that's the Task Force for Climate Rate Related yes. Financial Disclosures. Yes. Yeah. Oh, fantastic to hear. You described the past decade in one, one of your recent articles as a bruising one for business. So reflecting on uh, 2010 to 2020. Are the bruises healing or, or is the patient still in intensive care, so to speak? Um, well, I know it's my words and bruising. What I would say, we shouldn't get too um, worried about ourselves. Yes, there's a bruising, but in the reality of practical life, there's people far more badly bruised by the world we live in than accountants. But I use that phrase deliberately because we have been in the spotlight. Um, yeah, and rightly or wrongly, there's there's been issues raised about the behavior of accountants and where they sit. This comes back to the whole trust agenda. It's a much bigger issue in society, and, and it and it shows itself in in many different ways. Because actually, trust generally is something that is broken down across societies, and and it drives different behaviours that show very visible patterns. And I think trust is partly driven by hope. So where people don't have hope because they can't see a better life, a better change for themselves then why should they trust the current system and the environment they see? Because it's not, it's not working for them. And I say that at the widest possible level. So actually, if, if I'm looking at the environment I live in and it's not working for me and I can't see an improvement, then it's quite difficult to trust that environment because who am I trusting? Because they're not working for me and, and therefore I'm not trusting the system. And I'm not trusting the system at a political level or at a corporate level because I believe people are out for themselves and, and, and I'm the one not benefiting. And therefore you can understand both at a political level that people start voting differently because they're looking for hope in something that isn't being delivered. And at the same time with corporates, if they don't feel they're benefiting from the corporate society and everybody sort of buys into, well, corporates create wealth, question mark, do they create wealth for society? Do they create it for themselves and themselves the elite? 
because there's a social obligation for businesses to create wealth for everybody and a fair distribution. And I think where the trust goes missing is when society says, are you doing that or are you not? And I think we've maybe lost that. Over the last decade, we've seen a number of large-scale corporate failures. And if one was to believe the media headlines, uh, people would put that blame squarely on auditors. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, not at all. I think that's far too simplistic. Corporate failure comes around for a series of reasons. Sometimes it's just bad judgment. Sometimes it's business run out of time, etc. And it just hasn't been able to move with the times, even though it could see the direction of travel. And there are many examples of that. For example, uh, the move into mobile phones and cameras, the demise of cameras, the demise of film is a very well-known one. Um, people reinventing themselves. And, and, and sometimes it is, with hindsight, bad judgment. But the auditor isn't causing any of that corporate failure. Now, what the auditor might do, he might actually pick some things up and question the management, but the person responsible for running a corporate business is the management, full stop. Now, if there is some sort of fabrication of numbers, there's a healthy debate about what's realistic for the auditor to pick up. And, and, and at one extreme, you get into misunderstanding of numbers. Often it's a judgment issue. So what is a contract value? The contract value, it's, it's, not science, it's not an arithmetic where two plus two equals four. Well, this could happen or what would be the future losses? It's, it's not a perf perfect science. It's not as simple as just adding up numbers. So there's a judgment in there. And I'm sure there are instances where you could look at the audit and say, well, you might have spotted that earlier, the direction of travel. But that's about direction of travel. The decisions and the corporate responsibility lies with the management team. And interesting, actually, for the majority of corporate failures, I haven't heard, I haven't heard management team saying we weren't at the helm. I have heard others say, where are the auditors? I, I find it quite surprising. They're, there is a correlation, and it's absolutely fair to say, well, I'm just surprised that if it was misstated here, why didn't the auditors pick this up? There's conversations to be had. Unfortunately, people tend to make judgments quite quickly based on what available information in the newspapers. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody here, but unless you're, you're close to the workings of the company, you simply don't know the truth until maybe a report comes out later. So... I'm not saying there isn't res responsibility, but auditors do not cause corporate failure. Management decisions do. So as the CEO of ICAS, you've led the Institute through a period of significant change to position ICAS as a modern, leading and virtual professional body. So Bruce, can you tell us a little bit more about that journey that you've had as CEO? When the opportunity came up to apply for the job, if you like, Chief Executive of ICAS, um, I remember sitting down with my brother, just the right sight of 40, left the army and actually retained as chartered accountant. So, so he is a chartered accountant. He doesn't have 30 years good experience like me, but he's got a few years. And um, I was sitting with him and I said, so what do you think? Should I apply? And his response was very simple, but made me think, because he was now a member of five or six years standing. And he said to me, if you're going to apply, you need to be able to articulate the purpose of ICAS. That really got me thinking. If I can't articulate why ICAS exists, then how on earth am I going to 
push it forward, develop a strategy? So it's one of the best questions. He'll probably hear this and be delighted to me acknowledge him, but actually it's probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. What is the purpose of ICAS or what's the purpose of any corporate? Because if you haven't got a purpose, you haven't got a soul and you haven't got a reason to be here. But when we start looking at purpose, we engage with council, we engage with members and we engage with non-members, but also the staff. And, and yes, there were stickies on wall, there was discussion groups and we started to land on themes. And, and, and we actually got to a point where actually I thought we landed on something which made sense. And to this day, 18 months or so later, I can still articulate and understand that it drives what we're trying to achieve. And, and simplistically, that is, so what's the purpose of ICAS? It's one, grow. Secondly, learn. And three, advance together. So grow the profession, grow, big focus on learning here, grow as the individuals come in. So you come in from, I talked about my university days, arriving, learning, starting. As you qualify and you're admitted to the profession properly, you continue to learn with everybody else. And actually your vision changes from narrowly to accountancy, to corporate, to wider, and, and many aren't in corporates. And then advance together is not only ICAS members, but it's the entire profession. And overseeing that advance together in the public interest. Touching on the grow aspect, and as I understand it, there have been some recent changes to the syllabus, mm. which has been quite significant. So would you like to expand upon that? Yes. And um, so so when I took over the job, one of the first things we looked at is what does the finance professional of tomorrow look like? And deliberately use the word finance professional because it's a wider band than maybe what we've had in the past. And, and people have got different ideas. But certainly what we were seeing was there was large sections of knowledge out there coming into everyday being that if we didn't teach, our next generation need to know. And we can't afford to ignore. Now some of that, well it naturally leans towards technology. Technology is coming and affected across the board. So whether it's um, cybersecurity, whether it's data protection, data analytics, use of data is a very big one, uh, risk in technology, the ethics of technology, and actually some good old-fashioned stuff, actually, uh, business acumen we've brought into the syllabus because it, it wasn't particularly evident while, it's, while you learn it on the job. We've actually brought it to the syllabus. So we challenged ourselves to how much do we need to change? Do we need to go modular? to be able to provide this to different people. And as we looked at this quite quickly, we identified these areas I've mentioned, which would require about a 25% change. Now to do that, we can't simply keep adding to the syllabus because there's a finite learning time available and there's a finite cost. But actually, so being accountants, we look at it and say, we need to introduce this, what do we need to drop? And actually it was possibly easier than we thought in terms of dropping because accountants we like bridges so we're bringing in 25% more in my head we dropped about 15% of what I would call rote learning so we got ourselves to say well actually if it's available in the working environment and we live and breathe the internet via our phones via everything else you, it's very difficult to be disconnected to the internet then if that's available you don't need to learn it. If it's a disclosure checklist, so 
we're not we're not sitting in a classroom anymore teaching someone to learn a poem sure. you can find the poem it's what do you do with the poem when you found it so actually that allowed us to cut out maybe 15 percent and then some of the more traditional areas which i kind of joke around you know we i think we finally dropped the question about um the plumber who inherits the Bing vase from his great aunts and will he have to pay inheritance tax? I remember that question very yes. well. So, <laughs> so from that degree, not many of us in our working lives have had to deal with that. Sure. So we took some of the stuff which was probably subterranean in the first place and got rid of it. Uh, and for example, some of the specialism in my own area when you go to personal bankruptcy, if you want to specialise in that, you can down the line. But interestingly, we will go modular in the future, I'm pretty sure of it. But at this point, when we designed the new syllabus and we took it to our own qualifications board and others, the view was everybody needs this core stuff. I think there's another stage to come where there will be specialisms and, and maybe one will be particularly audit focused. So it could be tail end qualification in the syllabus or just beyond it where I really am going to specialise in audit and I need that level because many of us came through audit, but we didn't stay in it. Or you could have one, frankly, you know, I'm, I'm going off into public sector. So I do see what we would begin to call core and more come in. There'll be core syllabus and there'll be more depending on where your life is taking you. So it seems like it's quite a, quite a big change in the syllabus, but I'm assuming the content and the examination is, is, examinations are going to be as rigorous as ever. Absolutely. So what does the future of ICAS hold around business transformation and how you're making ICAST more digital. One of the great things about my job is I get to meet a lot of members. There's 23,000, 17,000-ish working. When you do meet the members, there's a really rich tapestry of conversation. Everybody's got a story to tell. They've got their own journey and actually really passionate about the Institute. But that connectivity is really difficult to scale up one-on-one but if you've got digital platforms, it's totally scalable. So, you know, in this modern world, most of us will be on LinkedIn. We have conversations or, or not conversations. We more likely publish and people come back to you. But I've been very, very keen on this. If we can scale up the connectivity within the ICAST members, then we're giving the members something very valuable. And it knows no boundaries. So that therefore someone based in Sydney, Hong Kong, New York, can be as much of that member conversation as another ICAST member in my ICAST building to me. So that we can have conversations, we can speak to each other in a secure platform, and in doing so, it actually gives me rich feedback of what the members are interested in in a secure platform, so that we can see what members are interested in. And if I'm a member, one of the most valuable parts of my membership if you like, is what do I get from my membership? It's that connectivity with others. And I can get ideas from you and other members and I can speak to you. So if we truly make that work, and we can now, which is why we launched CA Connect, and we've got, we've got, we're heading for 20% of the membership already signed up, that's a very rich vein. And, and I, can, I can look at that and say, I'm a member, I'm getting real value out of talking to these groups. And, and in practical terms, I can go on there, I can look at the address book of what members do, I can see their CVs, and I can see that these members are saying, if you want mentored, contact me. I could choose the one that I think is suitable to me, I can contact him. The same way around, we have many more senior members, and it doesn't always work senior-junior, but a lot of senior members who turn around and say, 
I would love to give something back and I'd particularly like to mentor. So they could actually see who's looking for a mentor and they can contact them. So it's a two-way flow. Now, I think that connectivity and the member discussions should be leading edge. I've sat down with members before and I thought, oh gosh, wouldn't it be good if you met X? And I've arranged it. But that's only one of me and, and a few other people at the Institute. If the members are doing it for themselves, it will be the most valuable membership tool we've ever created. So as the CEO of ICAS, can you tell me about one of your sort of highlights of that role over the last 18 to 24 months? Yes, well, well, the one that I immediately visualize um, is the admission ceremony. And, and it might be a strange one, people listening, but um, I had only been to one admission ceremony before when my brother was in the audience coming through a few years ago. And that is the admission ceremony for when you've qualified and you've passed and you're yes. receiving your certification. Yes. So, so my role this year was alongside Sandy Manson, the president. Sandy's on the stage giving out certificates. Uh, Mark Allison's reading out the names and I'm kind of there giving a short intro and end. Um, it was a remarkably emotional experience, which I didn't anticipate. You're standing up there and I've done many stages before, but you have this huge youngish population, not all young, but but with their parents there and very, very proud parents and family. And I actually find it, I find it remarkably emotional more than I thought it would. Um, and it just surprised me. And, and, and during the ceremony, actually, there was one moment where I just thought, come back to my digital theme, which, which I just kind of came up with on the spot. But we have a generation that have always got their mobile phones. And there was some marvelous pictures taken that day. But, but once they'd all come up on stage and sat down again, I just had this idea, because I've been heavily promoting the last year, put CA after your name your business card on your LinkedIn, create a community so it's recognized. Very proud of it because they are quite unique initials. So I asked the audience to get their phones out and go to their LinkedIn profiles there and then and add CA after the name, which they all did. And then I got to wave their phones. But my point was, and I said to them, Queen Victoria gave us those initials in 1854. She'd have never have thought that 400-ish, 350, I think, new admits in the room would be able to get a phone out, change their detail, a phone that could transport them wherever, could go on their phones and instantly add those initials that she awarded to us as an institute and to our members that they could plug that in social media and tell the world they'd just got them today. And, and I said that to her, I said, I just wonder how Queen Victoria would translate that. Did she know what empowerment she was giving? And, and I thought, so it was the emotion of the occasion, if I'm honest, and, and it just made me think, this is why we're here. Thank you very much for your time today, Bruce. It's been a great discussion. I'm very, very glad to hear the direction that you're taking ICAS as an institute. If any of the listeners wanted to reach out to you or connect with you, how could they do so? Well, hopefully they can find me various sources. Certainly find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, through the website. And, and straight email bcartwright at icast.com That's all for this episode of the CA Agenda. Join me next time when I'll be speaking to View Cinema's Alison Cornwell.